Today's podcast is brought to you by Blue Canary. The bird has landed on beautiful Bainbridge Island, conveniently located at 499 Madison Avenue. ASE Master Technician Clint Ramsey brings over 15 years of experience, award-winning diagnostic skill, and a desire to reinvent the automotive repair experience. Schedule an appointment online at bluecanary.biz or call them today at 206 206- Four five one four two two zero. GreatNorthernElectric.com serving our Bainbridge and Kitsap neighbors with solutions for anything electrical in your home. Two zero six eight four two three six two zero. This segment of the Bystander Podcast is brought to you by Eagle Harbor Insurance. We don't sell insurance. We help people buy it. This has always been their motto and continues. They understand every family has different insurance needs, be it coverage or premiums. No two cases are the same, and they will always do their best to guide you into the proper coverage to fit your budget. They are here to help anytime. Give them a call at 206-842-7410 or contact them online at eagleharborinsurance.com. Are you a service member thinking about buying or selling your home? Whether you're active duty, a veteran, or a family member, you need a real estate professional who understands the unique challenges of the military. A Navy veteran, certified military relocation professional, prior Blue Angel, and CEO of the Repoint Real Estate Group at Keller Williams Realty Puget Sound, Scott Lever specializes in helping military families relocate to and from the Kitsap Peninsula. Call him today at 206-486-4891 or visit online at repoint.com. I got something for your mind, body, and soul. Welcome, Podcastville. You found the Bystander Podcast. Today's guest is Aaron Maryhugh. Aaron, good morning. How are you? Good morning. I'm well. Thank you. Super good to see you. Um, for you guys out there listening, Aaron and I go way back about 13 years to Garfield High School, and I brought her in today to talk about compassionate communication, something that's dear to my heart and something that I've been studying recently this year. And I was looking to do more nonviolent communication. And I came across her name on the World Wide Web, because you're a big star on the World Wide Web. And uh, I was like, oh, my God, I know her. And now you're here. Thank you. Oh, yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. So um, a lot has happened, and we got a lot of catching up to do after 13 years. Um, 
Tell me what your experience was like at Garfield High School. Wow. Um, it was one of the most meaningful chapters of my life thus far. Mine too. Yeah. It's a special place, or it was when I was there. I, I can't speak to it now. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think Garfield is really where I learned that it was okay to be who I am, be my true self, and where I learned about a lot of different ways of living and a lot of different types of people. For sure. It was yeah. eclectic, diverse, um, sometimes heated, sometimes extremely passionate. I remember the the music department of Garfield just being incredible and people just coming out of there with so much talent and it was just kind of a breeding, breeding spot for talented artists at the high school level. I mean, just, and they still do outstanding stuff with the band. Um, you play instruments? Um, so while I was at Garfield, I played the cello in the orchestra. Um, I'm not really playing cello anymore, but I do um, dabble on the ukulele and write some songs. Nice. Shout out to Dante, who was a ukulele artist on the podcast <laughs> previous awesome. season. Um, what kind of burden is a cello for a kid? Because that's pretty much your body weight and you're packing it around. Yes, yes. Um, it depends on what case you have, I would say. So I did not have a case with wheels. So it was it was quite a burden um, bringing it on the school bus. Luckily, by high school, uh, they had cellos on site. And so you just, you know, get to class early and go pick your cello from from the closet. So you only had yeah. to lug it around when you're real little. <laughs> when I was real especially when it really was burdensome is when I had to lug it around. I asked because yeah. my son's playing saxophone and that I think makes him not like band. <laughs> Just <laughs> carrying it from, from the house or the band room to anywhere. And yeah. Like, I'm out. Yeah. It's too much. Totally. Uh, tell me about some of the teachers you had at Garfield. Um, did you have a favorite? Well, Carol Burton stands out right away. So she was she was amazing. She was incredible, and I believe she's still there at Garfield teaching. I haven't heard her name for forever. Yeah, yeah, she was really influential for me. Um, She encouraged me around my singing, so I'd always been really shy about singing, and um, she was a huge support and just kind of believed in me and spent a lot of extra time coaching me and encouraging me um, and. Just had a wonderful sense of humor. Yeah, what what I remember from about her was definitely her humor, but just how hard and strong and confident of a person she was. Absolutely. And yeah. her eyes were in the back of her head, head on a swivel. There was no messing about. She had kids on lockdown. You're here to, to learn when you're in my presence. Mm-hmm. And if she, I remember... Couple times I was walking through the hall because I could, <laughs> but it was during classes, and she would just jump to the front of the door like, "Who's not in the classroom right now?" And she would just lay into him. Oh, it's you, Tim. No, <laughs> but she came came out of that room hot. <laughs> yeah, um, Garfield is an incredible school. It's definitely got a big place in my heart. You know, and mm-hmm. seeing all the diversity and the and the and the struggles and the successes of the kids, and I felt like when I was working there, a lot of the kids were already more mature than other places, perhaps even myself, <laughs> and uh, their ability to learn. I, th- I think you were part of the team that won academic state championship, correct? 
That rings a bell. That might be true. <laughs> yeah, well, Aaron played on the uh, girls' varsity soccer team that I coached at Garfield High School. And we had two years there where it was 3-9 and above in grade point for the entire team. Mm, mm-hmm. And that was impressive. Yeah. Because to go to school, play in band, have extracurricular activities, travel, because we had to travel a lot, um, and to keep up the grades to that level was very inspiring, for sure. And I, I don't think I could work at another school after having that experience. Yeah. There was, you know, movies made there. There was just so much happening in the neighborhood. It was kind of the tail end of the crack epidemic, too, which was bizarre that there was crack dealers, you know, on the skirts of the outside of the field. And you'd hear police activity, occasional gunshots, you know. And then we had just weird people stop by. I remember... Queen Latifah just stopped at practice one day, and I was just like, what the heck? Just want to give you guys a shout-out. Jimi Hendrix's sister did something with us. Um, Quincy Jones, he'd come by. Just random people just swing by to say hi. Some skateboard guy, too, that gave the school like 500 pairs of shoes. I'm not a skateboard enthusiast, but I remember having to be on the news with him talking about the gift that he had given and it was weird, like all these kids that needed shoes were getting shoes, but their first thought process was selling them. <laughs> right, yeah, <laughs> like, like, to get the value of the shoes. Exactly. Yeah. It's yeah. like, yeah, can I get a couple extra? But um, things like that were um, always happening. Do you have a story about something that was unusual that happened at Garfield? <sighs> oh, I have many. I'm just trying to choose one. Um, Tell two. I mean... This isn't necessarily a specific story, but an experience that still echoes in my mind and my heart a lot is just going to an assembly. I don't know if you ever got a chance to go to an all-school assembly. I will never forget the first one I went to in ninth grade, walking in, like starting high school, and just the whole gym is chanting their year. So my year was 06, so everyone's chanting 06. And to feel the energy in that room was just something else. And that's, I don't, I don't think that I've been in another environment where that same energy has been achieved. It's really, it was really powerful. I remember going to the basketball games when Brandon Roy, um, all-star NBA player was playing there. And there's four other guys that went to University of Washington. University of Washington went in a deep run. But, and then there's uh, that Brooks player at Franklin. There was basically NBA talent on the basketball court and it was packed to the rafters. And then there was professional basketball coaches, college coaches, the cheerleading, the chanting, the, it was by far the most electric experience and it was high school Mm -hmm. and it was not nothing fake about it. It was no pumping in music like they do at the pros. And um, it was a vibe that I couldn't miss a game. Like I had to go to every Garfield basketball game, for mm-hmm. sure. The football games, not so much, though. <laughs> Shout out to Isaiah Stanback. Threw the ball to himself, basically, for four years. Um, let, let's get off Garfield. Let's talk about what you're doing now. You're, yeah. you're um, consulting, doing compassionate communication, and you do that for groups and individuals and businesses. Um, let's back up. How did you get into that? Yeah, so um, 
I mean, in some ways, when I look back, my whole life was just dots connecting toward this career. Um, but I think the most immediate lead in to this career was actually a, a failed relationship and a failed business endeavor. Um, so about six years ago, I had moved with my ex-partner to Bolivia, his home country. And we had this dream of starting a youth hostel together because we had met traveling and we loved the international travel community. Um, his mother had a property in a small town in Bolivia and offered it to us as a, a place to build our business. So um, we moved down there and pooled our life savings and began the project and just hit so many obstacles in our communication. And there was a lot of conflict. I mean, almost daily challenges in our relationship, but also with his mother and um, just navigating how to how to take on this incredible endeavor of building a business in a foreign country. Um, and six months into the project, it it became clear to me that it it wasn't viable. I wasn't well there because of the level of challenge. It wasn't viable business wise or relationship wise or relationship both? wise. Actually, it's gone on to be a flourishing business, and his family is still managing it. Um, so it was definitely a viable business on paper, um, and the the dream behind it was was obviously speaking to a lot of people. Um, for me personally, with the the interpersonal dynamics there, I was. Um, I wasn't able to show up and um, you weren't able to be present. Yeah. Yeah. I couldn't be present and I was really reactive. I was caught in a lot of shame and reactivity. Um, so I made a pretty abrupt decision and in a matter of less than a week, I had left the relationship and the project. Uh, so I came back to Seattle in the middle of winter, actually right around this time. I think this might be like my six-year or seven-year anniversary. I can't remember. Did you find that depressing too, coming back to the rain and gray? <sighs> you know, initially it was comforting um, to come home. I'm born and raised here, so that was comforting. But um, it was a little bit, it was a dark time. Like it lives as a dark time in my memory, for sure. Yeah. So um, one of my friends, also a Garfield person, um, sent me the link to a class in nonviolent communication. And the description jumped out at me because of what I'd just been through. And so I went with her and we we sat there and it was like, wow, everything in me was so drawn to it. I was like, this is exactly what I need to understand my experience and heal from it. Uh, and it was. So I took a 12-week class and what started out as just kind of my, uh, my own healing journey became... Um, a hobby that then it became clear that um, I had skill and I had capacity around this hobby and that people were benefiting from what I was sharing. That's the best feeling. Oh, yeah. When you can see the benefit that you give to someone else. Yeah. And I'm, I'm trying to get deeper into this myself. And that's what you said is very relatable. Uh, mm -hmm. Do you, I want to talk to you because you, you're probably the, the dictionary on this, but... Um, Marshall Rosenberg, um, can you tell me a little bit about what you know of him, the the founder of it? Yeah, I mean, um, it's interesting because I'm sort of, I just missed his lifetime. 
So, so yeah, he, um, my original teacher had met Marshall many times and had a personal relationship with him. Um, and I just missed his appearance on this earth. So a lot of the things I know about him are through stories that I've heard told. Um, I know that he was fascinated by what causes humans to be kind or to be cruel, what makes the difference there. And he was, um, you know, had a, PhD in psychology was very knowledgeable about the human psyche and human behavior and um, really had an aptitude for seeing the forces at play in our behavior and what what can bring out the goodness in humans. And he thought we were inherently kind, correct? And that, that hate and distrust were learned behaviors. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. So he, he focused, his work focused a lot on um, you know, what is it in our socialization and in our environment and the systems that we live in that um, kind of indoctrinates uh, a way of being that doesn't meet our needs? And how can we how can we move toward meeting our needs more and therefore create behaviors that are more life giving? Yeah, I mean, we were just talking about before we came on air here, I referenced a conversation I had with you a long time ago that wasn't comfortable because I didn't know how to give you what you needed. Mm. You, know, you were a busy high schooler and trying to balance things. And you came to me and said, hey, is, is this something worth doing? And I felt like I, I wanted you to be inclusive part of the group, but also you weren't a vital part of the group at that time. And you had a lot going on and you just came up to me very matter-of-factly and you accepted my answer. And then I, you know, I was telling you that it took a long time for me to get, get past that because I was remembering that I was always looking for the disdain or the argument or the fight or how I could be defensive and prove my point. But you took the answer and just left. Mm. And that, that's almost like telling a kid, I'm not upset with you. I'm just disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it always stuck with me. So times like that is where I, I think I draw to come to the conclusion now where what does the other person need? How can I show empathy for them? How can I love them regardless of my opinion? How can I just be present for the conversation and listen to them? Mm-hmm. And how can I give in, in a way that you know is not selfish? And that's what's cool about what you're doing. Um, when we go, when we talk about Rosenberg, um, how did he apply the, these teachings? I mean, he was teaching all over the world, um, so he was sharing these teachings to many different demographics. I know he was involved in peace talks and you know peaceful protest, and he was very. Um, oriented politically and kind of helping helping create harmony and synergy across difference in many different contexts. And I mean, honestly, I wish I knew more about his life. I'm not that well studied in kind of his history. Mm-hmm. Um, I I have sort of stories that I can recall when I'm in the flow of teaching and it's like, oh, I've heard this story about Marshall and, you know, here's a story. Um, but when it comes to the human being and really who he was, um, you know, I think other sort of elders in the NVC community have a lot more 
to share on that. I'd, I'd be curious. The NVC community, I like that. Yeah. Um, do you know how the whole concept developed over time? What what started the movement? So um, my understanding is that the the race riots uh, started the movement. Um, basically. Marshall was um, exposed to a lot of violence and anti-Semitism. He was Jewish. And um, it, it, like for so many of us, it does, brought up a lot of questions. And um, I think his response, his looking for answers of where this hatred comes from and how we dismantle it, um, was really at the root of nonviolent communication and how that came to being. Um, so it's definitely always had kind of um, political roots. Yeah. What kind of assumptions can we take about um, nonviolent communication, such as we all need, have the same needs as, as humans? Mm-hmm. What are some of the other assumptions that we can take away? Yeah. So um, it's so funny you're asking this. I almost printed out the list of NVC principles, which I'm sure you can Google and find. Um, but it's such a powerful document because it talks about these assumptions. And I don't have them all memorized. I can say sort of my, the ones that are living close to my heart today. Yeah, for sure. We don't fact check either. Yeah, so. yeah. <laughs> all right. Go on. Go on. Um, so one of the things that I love about nonviolent communication is that it it makes a distinction between human needs, the things that give us um, well-being and that enrich our lives, and the strategies we use to meet them. So it talks a lot about how do we get in touch with what matters to us, and then rather than just kind of forcing our strategy for how to get those needs met on other people, how do we collaborate around needs and have conversations that include all the needs at hand? Um, so for me, that's been powerful because it it helps me tap into more creativity. I think so often when we get a sense of desperation around um, a particular agenda we have or that we see as the right way of doing something, it's very easy to get our blinders on and not listen and not be collaborative. And so making that switch to see how can we talk about needs and open up to multiple strategies for meeting them. So that's one that's been really, um, really alive for me recently. So you really got to look and and ask yourself, what do I need versus what do I want? And and try to go from there. Yeah. What do I need instead of what action do I want to see? Another one that I really like is that feelings are feedback about our needs. So um, before learning NVC, I, I mean, frankly, I was just really irritated by my feelings. Um, my challenging feelings would come up and it was like always at the most inopportune times and I had no control over them and I didn't know how to get them to go away. And um, I think as every single person can probably relate to when we have challenging feelings, we don't act like we would like to act. And so... Um, when I learned NBC, learning that feelings had a purpose, that they were giving me feedback about needs that wanted my attention. So if I was feeling angry, you know, what was it that I was needing? Was it respect? Was it care? Was it support? Was it help? Um, or if I was feeling sad or lonely, you know, any of these feelings that previously had been 
um, I had sort of interpreted them as a burden um, became suddenly vital and like important to pay attention to. How do, how do you figure out what you truly need in a situation? Like I'm pissed off right now. Why? I can't figure it out. Yeah. I mean, I think a great starting point is just getting some vocabulary. So every single class I lead, I give out a sheet that has a list of feelings and a list of needs. And for many people, it's the first time they've ever seen their needs on paper. Mm. Um, it's kind of a powerful moment for a lot of people. And for me too, that was my first memory of learning MVC. So just getting some vocabulary so we know what our needs are um, is kind of a starting point. And then I tend to bring in body awareness a lot. So I find that there's a lot of wisdom if we can slow down and tune in with our body sensations to connect with our feelings. And, and there's sort of an intuitive link to what it is we want when we get in connection with that. So I practice mindfulness um, and breathing. What is, what is mindful meditation? Because meditation is something that I can't do. I can't sit still. Uh, I, I don't want to say can't. There's, there's a <laughs> list of words in, in my vocabulary that I'm trying to cut out is always, never, should, mm -hmm. and the word hate. Mm. Those are words that I don't want to use. Mm. Mm -hmm. um, but meditation, which I'm not good at currently, <laughs> <laughs> um, What's what's the difference? There's mindfulness, there's meditation, and now I hear mindful meditation. Can you mm -hmm. explain that to me? What's what's that term? I mean, I can give you my opinion. I'm not necessarily an expert on that. Um, I think of mindfulness as um, being conscious of what is happening inside of ourselves and in the context we're in. So having awareness in the present moment of what is happening um, so for me, mindfulness is like, you know, where do I feel sensation in my body as I'm talking? Um, what's happening in my heart? You know, how does it feel to be sitting in this room? Um, and then also noticing like, what's Tim's body language sitting here? And kind of like, what's, you know, what's the vibe? And so being observant. Um, what is the vibe right now? <laughs> comfortable. All relaxed. Right. Good. Yeah. I'm so glad to hear that. Yeah. Engaged. Um, another word that I, I find myself uh, using and saying to myself a lot is intention. Mm -hmm. So right before I go to bed, I try to list mentally, what is my intention for tomorrow? Mm. How does intentions work into this whole thing? Mm. That's a beautiful question. Um, you hear that, mom? I'm beautiful. <laughs> beautiful question. I, I think that, I mean, in some ways, intention is at the heart of everything that I'm exploring and offering. Um, I'm taking this in so many directions in my head right now. I, I'll just start with the first one that comes to mind. Um, a lot of people come to find my business because they're looking for coaching around their communication. They want some support. And um, that's exactly how I found you. Totally. And, and why? which is great, by the way, I love helping people in that situation. Um, and they, they come to my work thinking that I'm maybe just going to teach them a different way of talking. And uh, what they come to find is that 
I actually don't teach them all that much about words. I give them a sheet of vocabulary and most of what I'm teaching them is how to shift their perspective. And that comes back to intention over and over again. Yeah. Um, so I like to say to people, you know, you can say the perfect words and if you're blaming someone, they'll be reactive. Um, and you can say something with an open heart that has judgment uh, woven into it and someone will, will soften. So the intention behind our words has a lot more power than actually what we say. I mean, our words certainly have power as well, but I'm, I'm really um, keenly aware of what our intention is when we're speaking and how that affects the interaction. Well, well said. Um, does communication block compassion in any way? Like if, if I really feel a certain way, but I can't express myself compassionately, um, how do, how do I get over that hurdle? I guess mm -hmm. that was a poor question, but you know what I'm saying, right? <laughs> yeah. Sort of like, um, the stumbling blocks that we have in communication, if we have a desire for more compassion in our interactions, how do we, how do we bridge that? Is that your question? How do I phrase a better question <laughs> <laughs> to get you to be comfortable to answer it? Um, I, I'm not well-spoken, but I want my words to express my intent and show gratitude and, and disarm the person I'm speaking to. I don't want to put up a wall. Um, shout out to Trump and uh, make it uncomfortable and not know how I spoke to someone. You know, like there's lots of times somebody give you that, mm, and, that mm, and you're like, wow, that didn't go well. Yeah. That was not my intent. Yeah. How were they reading what I said? Totally. Help yeah. me help me there, Aaron. Well, I mean, you're hitting on one of these invisible dynamics that's present in every interaction, which is the difference between intention and impact. So um, I find that most of the time when people are really earnestly trying to communicate something um, and they're not coming from blame, um, the intention is positive. It's toward connection and uh, the place where we get into challenge and conflict is when our intention has a different impact than we intended. And I mean, that's the space where conflict happens. That's the space I love to get in and facilitate and help people. Um, so just knowing that that exists, that there's a difference between intention and impact is, is kind of a light bulb moment for a lot of people. And then um, developing some language to notice I mean, it's usually apparent to us when we've had an impact we didn't want. Like you said, we get that. We get the body language. We get the gestures. We get the uh, facial expressions. Um, maybe even we get some some harsh words back. Um, but or the finger. Or the finger. <laughs> yeah. Developing some language um, to be vulnerable in those moments and, and reach for the person and say, you know, it seems like maybe you're uncomfortable hearing what I just said. Or, you know, gosh, I'm realizing what I just said didn't it didn't resonate as true can i try again or what was it you know what was it like to hear that just now so some of these phrases that help us um yeah reach for the other person can yeah, ask the question yeah. am i am i reaching you do you hear what i'm saying yeah are you listening to what i'm saying um moralistic judgments mm -hmm. that has that has a role in in conflict 
Mm-hmm. I look at X, Y, Z, and I say A, B, C. Um, how do we get those judgments to leave our mind? Because you know, there's something to be said that first appearance or or first thought, you know, it's coming from somewhere. Mm-hmm. I, I see so and so for the first time, and I might have a a moralistic judgment of them before they even speak. Right. How do we get the mindset to, you know, exclude that from our our conscious thought? Yeah. So um, I don't know that we can ever exclude judgments from our thoughts. I would love that. Like, if you figure out a way to do that, let me know. Um, I, I personally find that we need to make a choice of where we place priority in our inner experience. So a lot of us have walked around, um, you know, letting our judgments guide our behavior. So we have a judgment about someone as selfish and then we we kind of keep them in that box and we can't see them in any other way. And our minds are really good at finding what we're looking for. So confirmation bias is a, a real thing. If I think someone, if I have a judgment of someone, I'm likely to look for behaviors that reinforce that judgment mm. and we get really entrenched. So um, that probably works the same way with people that have addictions too, right? That they seek out imagine. other people that have the same addiction, so they have some type of comfort around their surroundings. Yeah, potentially. Could be, yeah. So, you know, I think with your question around judgment, um, a lot of the work that I do is actually just noticing when we're judging and choosing how we interpret those judgments inside of our own heads. So um, I still have judgments all the time, and I've just come to realize that they're usually a distraction from feeling something. How do you feel about happiness versus joy? I feel like I no longer want to chase happiness. Mm -hmm. I want to find joyful moments and be present in that moment, Mm -hmm. and that's what's going to make me happy. Mm -hmm. But I don't think happiness is a consistent thing. How do you feel about that? Yeah. Um, I think more and more my experience is that um, the degree to which I can accept my experience in any moment is the degree to which I can experience joy. So there will be moments where I I am hitting an intense grief or I am in just extreme discomfort of, you know, something I've just heard someone say or, you know, I'm in a challenging moment and suddenly it occurs to me like, Aaron, this is your life. Like, this is your aliveness in this moment right now. This is what life is. This is how life is moving through you. And um, it doesn't mean I always like it, but the the degree to which I can accept that and understand that there is something in that for me. This is... Um, You know, I really believe feelings are life energy that are moving through us. And when we resist them, we we tamp down our joy. So I'm a big fan of Brene Brown's work. I don't know if you're familiar with her and maybe your listeners. Um, Uh, No, but she's like a personal motivator or something like that. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, she's so she's a researcher. She is um, she studies shame. She has a couple of TED Talks that are fantastic. And shame. Yeah. Um, she didn't set out to study that, but it, it just, that's where her research naturally led because she was looking at happiness and how do we live 
a life that is wholehearted. That's kind of her term. Um, so she has a number of wonderful books. Highly recommend all of her work. And she talks about, um, you know, when we numb the difficult feelings, we also numb the joy. So that's sort of, that's the um, ideology that I'm resonating with these days. Wow. That was deep right there. <laughs> um, you talked a little bit about feelings and needs. How does observation and requests filter into that as well? Yeah. Like we observe things all, all the time, but are we subconsciously taking that in or are we observing things in a certain pattern to behoove us in any fashion? Or are we observing things to that lead to a negative response? Mm-hmm. Observations and and requests for the things that you need. Yeah. I think of observations as kind of a, a stabilizer in in my own process and in my interactions with people, especially when things are going sideways. So, um, you know, we talked a little bit about where our judgments can take us. And I think that being able to anchor back into what actually happened is really a useful skill. So I know for myself, when I get reactive in a situation, um, going back and looking at, well, what was actually said? What actually happened? What was done? Um, then I can separate that out from the story that I start to tell myself. And that's the place where I think we really disconnect is when we fall into our own wounding, our own stories that, um, that don't allow us to see another perspective. Um, so from an internal perspective, having observations as a tool is wonderful. And then I, I see it all the time in our communication that when we lead off a conversation with an accusation or with an Ooh, opinion or a judgment, yeah. you know, that that goes downhill quickly. That sets the tone for a bad conversation. For sure. Yeah. So starting with an observation like, hey, I notice X, Y, Z is a much more neutral entry point. It's a doorway. And it um, instead of having people be defensive, usually they're curious when you start with an observation. Give me an example of a proper observation and a negative observation. <laughs> and don't pick on me, but <laughs> let's say Charlie Brown's here to my right. Um, what could you say about his, what, uh, so, uh, what do you observe? How do you start the conversation with an observation? Well, so I'll give you an example that I often do in a training. So I'll, I'll tell people, you know, let's say that you saw me um, pick up someone else's bag and leave the space at the end of this training. Um, if someone came up to me and said, Aaron, why are you stealing her bag? And I didn't realize that it was her bag or I didn't have that intention. I'm going to be defensive because there is an assumption already um, of wrongness in my action. And regardless of how that person is interpreting my action, it's more skillful for them to come to me and say, Aaron, so I noticed that um, you just picked up that bag and I see that it looks like you're leaving. Hmm. That's more of an open-ended entry point to the conversation. So it gives me an out if there's been a miscommunication, if I if it was an accident that I was picking up this bag. It gives me a chance to um, explain if there's an explanation. And it disarms the the reply. Yeah, yeah. So requests. How do how do I 
tell somebody what I need in a conversation. Yeah. So uh, requests are contrasted with demands in nonviolent communication. So uh, many times when we feel a strong attachment to having something happen, we fall into this habit of making a demand, which is basically not giving the other person an option. Um, no is not an answer. And the whole so, obey, the whole right. parenting back uh, in the day. I need you to do this. Thing. I need you to obey me, do this. Right. Um, and many times we even make demands, even though we use language as if it's a request. Like, would you mind doing this thing? But really we know, like, yeah, I need to do that thing. Otherwise there's going to be a, a consequence. So requests are this really awesome tool to allow the other person choice while still standing for what we want to see happen. And um, it's, it's really a way of kind of grappling with our own attachment to having things the way we want them and, and moving into a space where we include the other person's needs and still really hold on to what we want. Um, persist around our needs, but stay open around how they get met. You are just dropping knowledge, Aaron. I appreciate it so much. Um, when we when we talk about opening up with our requests and stuff, on the flip side, blame. Mm-hmm. How does that? How do we get out of the tit for tat? If that's a correct expression, or mm-hmm. or just the blame game. In general, um, that's a mindset. You know, you spilt the water um, as opposed to, do you need help cleaning up the water? Mm-hmm. How do we wrap our head around framing um, around blame? What a great question. That's in some ways um, the question I'm asking every single <laughs> hour my, of every single day. I asked myself the same thing. <laughs> I was like, why did I just throw so-and-so under the bus? Right. Well, I think... I don't want to. Yeah. um, I think that blame is... It's one way of operating. And it's a way that is heavily reinforced in a lot of the systems that we are existing in in this society. So our justice system is entirely hinging on blame. It's looking for who's guilty and who's innocent. And that mindset then permeates all of our systems and all of our individual psyches and relationships. And so I think, you know, the first thing is just to acknowledge that we didn't necessarily choose that way of operating. We inherited that way of operating that that's um, kind of built in on a nervous system level. Um, I find that helpful to remind myself. So it's something that we, we have to unlearn. And I think, um, You know, one of my favorite definitions of blame actually comes from Brene Brown. She says, blame is the discharge of pain. So when we are blaming somebody. You're killing it. (laughs) We're discharging pain. And so a lot of the work that I'm doing is teaching people how to be uncomfortable without putting it out on someone else. Yeah. I I think I told you earlier that this whole podcast was to get me out of my comfort zone. I... I'm a horrible communicator and I turn towards my fear in communication, not only in starting this podcast a year ago, but to take the nonviolent communication course. And it's something that I, I need to continue and I need to have this request. Hey, Aaron, can you, can we talk about it for a minute? Mm-hmm. You know, it's just constant reinforcement 
Because we can all take a class on anything and retain 50% of it. Mm-hmm. But then how much of that 50% that we retained are we actually practicing in an everyday um, process? Mm-hmm. And then lastly, it's like, where's the reinforcement once I leave, you know, counseling, therapy, classes, uh, get my degree, whatever it may be. If you don't go into that field and this is a tool for your everyday life, how do you continue to, um, I don't know, kind of back yourself up and and say, oh, yeah, that's how I'm supposed to, supposed to act. How, that's how I'm supposed to talk. Right. Um, yeah. How do, how do we continue to not only be present, but be aware of our behaviors and how we speak to people? Because I, I know what I want to say most of the time, but how it comes across, I don't know if I always take that into consideration. How is the person that's receiving the information formed by my words taking it? Mm-hmm. How, mm-hmm. What are some little tips or tricks to keep us um, conscious in that field? You know, I think a lot of people have this misconception, and I used to have it, that um, we're going to learn a better way of communicating and then we're not going to screw up anymore. And I just, I think that's such a dangerous myth. Um, so much of my work happens retroactively. Like I have a difficult interaction and then I go home and I unpack it and I figure out what happened and I figure out using the tools I have, going back to the worksheets I have, you know, listening to a podcast with Marshall Rosenberg, listening to, um, or reading a book and, and I'm, I'm doing the puzzle in hindsight and, um, so a lot of the work can happen there, just unpacking your interactions and, and taking the space to look at them. Um, I think another really important thing is having like-minded community. So people who you know will hold you accountable around the values you're trying to live. And that's been huge for me. Um, finding people where when I call them and vent about a situation they're not going to join in with me and get judgmental too. They're going to slow it down and say, wow, okay, so what are you actually feeling? Yeah, sometimes you just need to listen. You can't give advice. Mm-hmm. And I'm horrible at that. Somebody will vent and I'll be like, well, you should do this or you should do that. Oh, I use that should word again. Why didn't I just shut up and listen <laughs> and take it in and say, you know, I, I think I understand where where you're coming from, where you're going, and um, is there an open invitation that I can I can help in any way? What can I do for you? As opposed to, you know, you should have took a left turn there or whatever. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The communication, I, I I think I've adopted that here is I'm fallible. I'm going to make mistakes. So when I make mistakes, I rarely edit it. I let it be out there to say, hey. I'm human. I'm just like everybody else. Yeah. I mispronounce that word. I use the wrong word. I exclude words. Um, fallibility is almost attractive to me. Yeah. Like I'd rather you be real than than be fake. And, mm-hmm. and I love that about this type of um, concept. Hey, um, Bolivia. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Ometepe. I don't know if you know Nicaragua. That's Ometepe. Yeah. Yeah. I what's your relationship with that? And why I ask is because yeah. Bainbridge Island is sister cities. Yeah. With Ometepe. 
Yeah. So I love that you're asking about that. Um, I took a permaculture design course on Islo Metepe. Hold on. Yeah. What the heck's permaculture? Permaculture. So um, my understanding of permaculture is learning ways to work in synergy with nature. So to do no harm to nature and actually leverage um, the natural cycles and systems that nature has to benefit human life. So to live in harmony with nature and, um, and prosper within nature. Um, Is that like being a good steward of land? Is it? It can be. It has so many different applications and actually a, a breakthrough moment for me was um, discovering that my application of permaculture is social permaculture. Ah. So I had, um, I'm a big nature lover. I love gardening. I love being outdoors. I love hiking. And so taking this permaculture course was really focused on, um, primarily on stewarding the land and food production. So um, sustainable agriculture, the one that I took. Um, and, And then a few years later, I was kind of getting down on myself because I wasn't seeing a lot of application for permaculture, even though I, I'm very moved by it. I love it um, because I didn't have a garden and, um, you know, I live in the city and I went to the permaculture convergence and went to a session on social permaculture and had this moment of um, like just what what it was delight it was a moment of realizing that i had this application of permaculture that was happening i hadn't even realized i was doing it that was looking at how do we build community in a way that is um you know nourishing for everybody involved and how do we map our our um relationships in a way that is sustainable and synergistic so yeah, that was a beautiful experience um, going to that course and, and discovering my relationship to permaculture. And where did you study that? Um, on Ometepe Island in Nicaragua. There is wow. there's a farm there. Yeah, um, it's called Finca Bonafide, but Bonafide. And you're fluent in Spanish, yeah? I was, so I'm. You were. <laughs> I'm sort of. It's like slowly falling away. I, I think it's one of those things like use it or you, lose it. If you plopped me into a Latin American country right now, um, you know, in 24 hours, I'd be like back on my feet, able to converse. But um, because it's not part of my daily life right now, I, I'm not. I'm a little rusty. Okay. Yeah. Um, what, what other things happened while you're over there? It was what's what was your experience like? Just in 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 the whole city, in um, like just in Ometepe. Am I saying that correctly? Yeah, I think so. Um, what was my experience like? I mean, so that was a brief experience. I'm sort of um, that was about two weeks that I was there, and I've had sort of much longer chapters. Um, you know, right after I'm, I'm going to jump around for a second. Sure. Um, I did my first year of undergrad at the Claremont Colleges in California, and um, was really struggling that first year. Uh, I, I was experiencing the environment as like a little bit stifling, and having come from this really vibrant, multicultural environment at Garfield and then going to this sort of like small Mm -hmm. town, isolated in Southern California was really jarring for me. 
And um, so I decided to take a year off to take a, like a gap year, a gap year. Um, and I actually went, this was sort of in some ways, the beginning of my entrepreneurship was um, leaving the establishment and going for um, eight months solo backpacking in Latin America. So that's where I learned Spanish. That's where I also kind of grew this, this fascination with how humans relate and communicate well across difference. And um, that's the first time that I visited Ometepe. So I was in a number of different countries, but I, I did spend a little bit of time there. Um, and I just experienced that island as a very, um, a very vibrant community, um, really heartfelt people <laughs> doing wonderful work and mm -hmm. a much slower pace of life. I have a lot of memories of walking on foot between towns and, um, you know, cows crossing the roads. It's just a, in some ways, a simpler lifestyle that, um, there's a strong roots of community there. More like homesteading. Yeah. Similar. Yeah. Um, what about a pea patch? Can yeah, you... I could totally get involved in a pea patch. At the time when I was looking into that, there was actually like a multi-year wait list on the pea patches in my neighborhood. They were in high demand, but. I believe um, it. Yeah. What part of Seattle are you living in now? I live in Green Lake. Oh, it's beautiful out there. Yeah. That's yeah. where I always had, I felt like it was uh, the Benetton game, we used to call it the United Nations of soccer because every race and culture was represented at Green Lake totally. on the big field. Totally. Uh, yeah. We have a place out here called uh, Battle Point Park. It's very similar where it's um, kind of a fitness based park where everybody's doing activities, whether it be uh, mountain biking, horseback riding, jogging, soccer, lacrosse, basketball. There's mm. an observatory out there. It reminds me very much about Green Lake, except there's 10 people there. <laughs> <laughs> Slightly different. Yeah. I heard that Green Lake is, uh, I think it's the most visited public park in Washington State. Something yeah, like don't, that. I don't doubt it. Yeah. It's very. There's cool little cafes and bars all around it. And yeah. Yeah. I remember going to the library over there and swimming. And I remember seeing Sean Kemp and a bunch of Sonics out there playing all summer long. Totally. You know, just, that basketball court is historic. Yeah. Yeah, it's crazy seeing Sean Kemp throw down on some chained uh, basketball court <laughs> in the middle of a park. Um, what else do I want to talk about here? Um, tell me about uh, cognitive therapy and um, what's that? So maybe biocognition? Yes. Yeah. Yes. See, I don't know what I'm talking about. That, you're fine. You're fine. Um so I I kind of geek out when I find um, a modality that I really like that has to do with the human heart. And Sorry, what's modality mean? A modality is just like a, a system or a tool or an ideology, anything that um, can be applied toward changing our behavior. And um, there's a body of work by a guy named Dr. Mario Martinez, and he has a book, several books, um, but one of them is called The Mind-Body Code. And so he has a, a whole um, university around biocognition. And, and basically my understanding of it is that um, our beliefs are culturally influenced. So the culture that we came up in 
um, shapes our beliefs and has impacts on our relationships, but also our health. So he is, I think, most famous for his research on centenarians, people who live to be healthy beyond the age of 100. And what he found is that, you know, you might think that it's about their diet or their lifestyle. And he was finding that it I mean, some of it could be that, but that a lot of it was the cultural beliefs that they had inherited. The mindset, yeah. Around how life works and, you know, it's kind of these subconscious belief systems. So his work looks a lot at our subconscious beliefs and how we can um, basically go inside and reshape those to help us live a healthier life. Interesting. Yeah. Empathetic coaching. How do we speed up the wellness of that attitude? Of being empathetic? Yeah. Because I need to <laughs> I need to care more, Aaron. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I feel like it's a big void. Yeah. I, I don't care enough about enough people, enough things. Uh, mm. And I want to. And mm-hmm. I'm conscious of it. And when I don't care, I get this pit in my stomach. But it's definitely a cultural thing, like look out for number one type mm-hmm. process. But, you know, I'm I'm married and have a child and I have friends and colleagues and, mm-hmm. you know, I want to be empathetic to their needs. Like I was telling you earlier, you know, I didn't know what empathy even meant yeah. growing up, let alone until a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. And the stuff that you're teaching now is very heavy on empathy yeah. in, in my mind. Yeah. But now it's been about a year, and and I'm not as empathetic as I would like to be. How do I speed that process up? Good question. Um, I mean, I first want to just say I think you're not alone in that. um, In my experience, having empathy requires us to be vulnerable. It requires us to feel. And I think for many of us, you know, we didn't learn how to feel we didn't have education in that like how to process your how to process feelings how to be in touch with our feelings how to experience them without it completely taking us over or taking us under yeah because some people when they get sad they just shut down yeah and it's not something you they're willing to talk about or it's hard to provide the solace that they need or the answers and sometimes they just need time and space i mean that was definitely the case for me when my father passed was the grieving period. Yeah. I probably should have talked to somebody quicker um, right. and shared, but every process is different. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, no need to apologize. And um, actually one of my, I just recently wrote a post talking about when we are moved by things and how it's so automatic to apologize when we get moved. Yeah. Sorry. 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 <laughs> right. And, um, yeah, get that out of your vocabulary, right? Right. Like how sorry, do we, not sorry. I, I messed up. Well, yeah. So, but, but specifically with apologizing for crying, this is one of my big like sticking points recently is like, I really want to normalize us getting moved by things. I want that to be as normal as laughing. Like we don't apologize for laughing with each other, you know? So anyways, I just, I appreciate you um, sharing about your father. 
And, you know, I'm, I'm kind of coming back to your question about empathy and how do we care more? And um, I think it's really easy to think that empathy comes from having been through the same experience as someone else and therefore knowing what it's like. And one of the things that I've been discovering a lot is just, you know, how can I put myself in that person's shoes if I've never experienced anything like them? And I think that's a skill that it's it's a muscle that we have to strengthen. And I find that, you know, feelings and needs are a bridge there because I may not have been through the exact same experience as someone, but I have every single human emotion that they have. I have every single human need that they have. And I know what those things feel like on the inside. So for me, that's been a um, a way to step into the shoes of other people, even when their experience might feel very different than anything I've ever touched. Yeah, I have a shirt, I forget the saying, but it says something that about judgment. And I don't know what's gone on in your life the few hours that led up to coming into Studio 15 today. So I can't assume anything. And your reaction to me or our interaction may be based not on our interaction, but something that previously happened in the day or the week before. Mm -hmm. Like talking about my father is difficult. Right. Right. So... To always have empathy for others, it's difficult when you don't know what they've been through. You know? Yeah. So. Yeah. I like to say, you know, specifically when I'm talking about conflict is that such a vast majority of the conflict you're experiencing predates the conflict you're experiencing. Yeah. Well said. So, um, and we forget that all the time. We think, you know, we get in a conflict with someone and we think it's about the here and now and what's been happening. Um, but what I've seen over and over when we unpack a conflict is that on both sides, there's history, personal and relational, that has shaped what the conflict is. Yeah, something else yeah. diluted the water before the conflict even hit. Yeah. And, and that's difficult to share or to find out or to to understand when all you can think about is the conflict that you're presently having. Um, I want to talk about some of these workshops that you do. Yeah. Um, I want to talk about a couple that have passed already as well, um, because I think this is a hot topic right here. Compassionate communication at the holidays. Mm -hmm. I don't like holidays. <laughs> I'm just going to throw that out there. <laughs> I feel like it's been... Uh, changed into a candy Hallmark type thing and the meaning of holidays and, you know, it's not Columbus Day, it's Indigenous People Day. It's, you know, things are changing. Um, basically, they took the Bible and played telephone for years and years and years and stories change. And sometimes we lose what the, the spirit of the holiday is, you know, giving mm. thanks. We just had Thanksgiving and how many of us truly gave thanks to people. And sometimes people go through the motion, you know, maybe they work at the soup kitchen one day out of the year and, and think that they're giving back. And, and they are. Um, but I feel like holidays are stressful. <laughs> and you can pick your friends, but you can't pick your family members or yeah. your extended family members. Yeah. And then the pressure of getting the right 
gift. Like, I don't want anybody's gift myself. And I stress out completely about getting other people what gift, how many gifts, meaning, <laughs> non-meaning, um, heartfelt. You know, like when I when I coach soccer, the, the thing that I always loved the most was like a handwritten card mm, or a mm-hmm. photograph with a kid of just the two of us smiling, you know. Um, those those are meaningful. And I have a file folder of every thank you card from every team, every player that ever gave me anything. And that that's meaningful. Mm-hmm. Um you know, the brawn razor, you know, I, I didn't need that. Don't want that. Mm-hmm. That means nothing to me. You know, I can barely grow a beard as it is. Um, how do we show compassion in our communication when all we want to do is maybe sit on the couch and watch the football game or eat and leave or people start drinking heavily because they're uncomfortable? How can we ease the burden of holidays? Yeah. Oh, what a tender question. I mean, I I feel a lot of um, care for what the holidays are like for so many people because I think you make a great point that we don't choose our families and that means something different to everybody, um, family. Not so, to say that I dislike my family. But no, but... Um, different dynamics. Yeah. The, the bigger the party gets, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Um, I had... I read something recently that was like, when we go home to our families, like for, for those of us that go home to our family of origin, right? Our mm-hmm. parents and, and um, relatives, we, we fall under a spell and like we revert back to all of our old patterns and behaviors. And so um, anyway, I just, I found that to be accurate. That's been something I've worked through. Um you know, I think the the focus for me in that workshop, compassionate communication at the holidays, was mostly supporting individuals to support themselves and take care of themselves and have some, like, what is the word? Um, to have their own back internally and to accept themselves internally, because I think it is really challenging to shift these entrenched dynamics that we tend to have in our family systems. I, so. I know you need to love yourself in order to, to love others. And I try to take some time for myself. Like there's one day I, I play futsal on Mondays and go out to the bar and have some drinks and talk with s- some people that I play with. And that's kind of like a health moment for me for whatever mm-hmm. reason. It's like I'm taking time for myself. Mm-hmm. But I have this inner conflict that like I come out here and do this podcast or I go play that futsal or I like to go to the gym and, and take steam baths mm-hmm. um, because all-cause mortality is is um, increased if you go four times a, a week. Mm. Heat stress, like by 40% or so. Mm-hmm. That's all cancer, all kinds of debilitating disease and such can either be helped by extreme cold or extreme heat. So I try to push that on my my weekly routine but there's a big struggle within myself saying am i being selfish Mm. i gotta take time for myself to be healthy and to love myself so i can love others but then i wind up having this conflict in my mind and, and sometimes it comes out like oh you're always doing something for yourself 
you know, and I feel conflicted. Mm-hmm. Aaron, please help. <laughs> well, um, you know, we live in a culture that doesn't normalize self-loving behaviors. So that hasn't become a norm yet. And I think that what you're articulating is a struggle that a lot of people have. And I think we're going to start seeing a movement toward more normalization of self-care behaviors. Um, I really like to think about self-love and self-care as the behaviors that fuel love. So, I mean, it's exactly what you said Um we need these behaviors to resource us because love is not an easy task. Loving people unconditionally, like especially people we disagree with, is not an easy task. We need fuel. So I don't view it as a negotiable thing in my own life. And it is countercultural in many contexts to take time and energy that is just for me to replenish um, I think the other thing is there There seems to be kind of this confusion about um, the difference between um, self-indulgence, self-maintenance, and self-care. There's and a lot of self out there. There is, yeah. Um, I like so, to say I invented self, self-service self and self-improvement. <laughs> that is true. You did. I think I still have my self-improvement t-shirt somewhere. Oh, man. Yeah. yeah. That makes me feel good yeah super good yeah thanks for even remembering that was my mantra way back in that day of course yeah sacred boundary setting the mm-hmm. art of saying no mm-hmm. oh yeah this Com- is one of my favorites compassionate that that's got to give a lot of people empowerment yeah tell me what you do with that type of session or series yeah what do you call it series sessions workshops lectures so classes I have these one-time workshops, like the ones that you're mentioning, um, and then I have series that are eight-week, usually eight-week series. Um, So both sessions and series. Um, The boundary-setting work is something I'm super passionate about. I don't think that there is a lot of um, materials out there on boundary-setting that incorporates nonviolence. I think there's a lot of boundary-setting Uh, resources that in some ways could potentially promote behaviors that disconnect. So I've gotten really interested in how do we set boundaries in a way that maintains everybody's dignity and in a way that can lead to the most um, connecting experience for both parties if connection is desired by both parties. Um, so, yeah, this this workshop has been um, a, an accumulation of all of my journey of learning how to set boundaries. I, I would say that I kind of grew up as a people pleaser and being socialized as a woman in the world that's um, more predisposed to people pleasing and accommodating. And so um, what I started to realize is that resentment was this really toxic force in my relationships and in my life and it prevented my authenticity in huge ways so i started to really get real to the cost of resentment in my life and was starting to learn like how difficult it can be to say no in a way that 
um, that still gets us what we want in our connections. And I think it can be really black and white sometimes because we haven't learned the art of boundary setting. And so we just sort of default to like saying no in a very harsh way or cutting off from people. So this workshop is designed for us to understand the, the importance of saying no when we feel no, to identify where our no lives. I mean, for so many of us, we don't even know how to find our boundary until it's been crossed. Um, oh. Yeah. yeah. I bet. Yeah, so. Do you, a couple of things here that come to mind. Um, I think the lady's name was Erin Merriam, who was the one that got um, Know Your Body, Know Your Boundaries, health education in all those schools as a requirement. Mm. And she's similar to your age. Mm-hmm. If I remember the story correctly, uh, so your namesake and and, <laughs> and similar patterns there. Um, do you remember ever having a, a a boundary conversation in any of your schooling, or do you think this is something that's relatively new um, that they're instilling in health classes and anatomy and stuff like that? I never, I never learned about consent, for example, until uh, a few years ago, like literally. I was never given any formal education and consent or boundaries that I can remember. Yeah. So how do you, what's the difference between a boundary and a consent? Like you can lead up to this wall here and that's my boundary or I'm consenting to you coming up to the wall. How does that framework work in communication? I think consent is um, the the process through which we identify boundaries with each other. So consent culture is acknowledging that all of us all the time have boundaries and that if we don't ask where they are, we're liable to cross them and cause harm. So I think consent culture is really like, you know, this whole movement around consent, especially in light of Me Too movement is... What's that? Never heard of it. <laughs> Me Too. <laughs> um, Shout out to my girl, Alyssa Milano. <laughs> nice. So um, I'm not going to answer that. I'm assuming people know what Me Too is. Yeah, I'm just joking. <laughs> I'm making sure. Okay. Um Look at you, not assuming anything. That's great. I don't want to assume, but um, I think you have a pretty um, conscious audience on this podcast. Yes. Aware of what's going on. Let's hope somebody's out there listening. (laughs) So, yeah, I think, um, yeah, consent is, is the actions we take to take care of our boundaries and to honor them with each other. Well said. Uh, You have some series coming up in January here. Um, looks like, where are you at for this eight week? Oh, that's online. That's where you're at. You're in the ether. I'm in the ether. I also have one in person. Um, in Finney neighborhood. Yeah. So Finney Ridge neighborhood center is where I'll be for that one. Um, I want to, while I'm here, shout out, um, Aaron, maryhugh.com is where you can learn more about compassionate communication and what Aaron does. <clears throat> So, Aaron, tell me how you, I know you help people and individuals, but you do a lot with businesses, too, and help. How does that translate into the workforce? 
Yeah. So it takes a lot of different forms. Um, in some cases, I'm just coming in and I'm giving a training and, you know, staff are going through the same training together and they build some shared language and some shared concepts that they can take back into their their work days together. For example, like what's a good business language, I guess? A good well, I mean, a lot of it is is feelings and needs. Learning how to talk about these things that are at play in every single interaction and learning how to have different conversations um, and how to kind of track where each person is in a conversation. Um, so, and requests, you know, like we talked about. Yeah, if your boss asks you to do something in a poor manner, you're not so inclined to work hard for that person, right? <laughs> this is true, yeah. What do you know? You're, you're, you are the boss lady. <laughs> Um, private coaching. If th- first off, thank you very much for this private coaching <laughs> giving me today. Um, I hope I can reciprocate in some fashion. Um, how does that work? Do people reach out to you, and how long is that last? Is it a, a one-off, or is it a, is it a overtime thing? Yeah. So um, usually, it's a an amount of sessions that we agree on together usually between six to eight sessions. Um, So I kind of have two areas that I specialize for private coaching uh, for individuals. One is conversation coaching. So sometimes people will come to me and they've either had conversations that have gone really poorly and they want to learn how to do them better or they're anticipating some difficult conversations coming up. Or in general, they just find themselves at a loss as to how to engage in conflict or how to negotiate for something, you know. So anything that has to do with crafting conversations is just my absolute passion. Um, so that's one area. And then another area is is more around personal transformation. And that's a lot of dismantling patterns. So I, I really specialize in helping people understand their reactivity and responding in ways that are true to who they are. Yeah, reactive behavior is difficult to curtail. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, somebody will say something and I'll do everything I can not to get set off or have a trigger or, Mm -hmm. you know, just erupt. And um, that wasn't always the case. Before it was, the default was to erupt. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I can see that being very effective and and good for a, a work environment, especially. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah, a lot of people don't like their supervisor or their boss. And it's probably comes from, hey, you work for me, you do it this way, you do it the way I tell you, and that's it. Right. It's never trying to get the best out of the employee by asking in the correct mannerisms. Yeah. And, you know, some of my favorite work to do with businesses is actually working with the leaders. Um, I think what, a lot of business owners mistakenly think is that um, if they hire the right people, they'll get the right results. And yes, it does matter who you hire for sure. There's culture fit and there's the skill set that people have and their way of being. Um, but it's also the the communication that the leaders are modeling and the systems that they're setting up to enable healthy communication. So I I do culture change projects with leaders to to help them shape the emotional environment that they want for their employees that will help their employees be motivated, be collaborative, um, feel well in the workplace. Uh, You said collaborative a few times and Mm -hmm. 
I think that's been a big mind shift for me. I was always very, very competitive. And now as I get older and wiser, hopefully, <laughs> my thought process is, who else can I collaborate with? Mm -hmm. Because whoever I collaborate with is going to make it twice as good as I could do it individually. It's, mm -hmm. it's the teeter-totter balance mindset that I have now. Yeah, you know, I still want to, you know, win every card game, every soccer game, whatever. Um, but I'm willing to do that with help. Yeah, yeah. And it's interesting once you turn that corner, and for a functioning business to come out and say, "Aaron, I'd I'd like your help." Mm -hmm. It's got to be really rewarding because you can uh, help on a broad scale, especially within a a large business. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um. I never get off the rock. We kind of call the rock, yeah, the island, yeah, yeah. the rock here. Um, how's things going in Seattle? Seattle's interesting. It's changing so quickly right now. Yeah. You know, I lived in Belltown for, you know, 10 plus years or whatever when I was working at Garfield. And there was vacant lots, mm -hmm. you know, on First Avenue. And mm -hmm. uh, there's a lot of crime and all that stuff. But now I see, like, there's a crane every block. Yeah. Every block has new buildings. Yeah. Traffic's insane. It's always under construction in my book. Yeah. Um, how do you see it changing, you know, after leaving and being immersed in it as a young young person and then mm -hmm. coming back as an older person after all your world travels and experiences through life? Yeah. You know, I mean, obviously the physical environment is changing so much, just the landscape with all the buildings coming in. Um, I was commenting with some people close to me recently, just, you know, I do spend a fair amount of time in the central district um, and right by Garfield. And that whole area is almost unrecognizable culturally. Um, there's a lot more white people walking around in that area. And there's a lot of gentrification happening in the city that's pushing people of color to the outskirts and, you know, further outside of town. So um, I'm aware of that and, and grieving that and also seeing that that's a phenomenon that's happening globally in big cities. Yeah, um, race equity is a hot topic right now. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I just see Seattle... Um, yeah, it's it's changing and there's part of me that mourns that like every day. <laughs> right. Um and, there used to be boroughs like yeah. here's the Hungarian people, the Russians, um Italians, Jewish community. It was it was very segregated. Well, I think it still is segregated in yeah. a lot of ways, but Yeah. I remember, you know, you you went to a certain spot in in Chinatown for Chinese food, you know. Mm -hmm. He went up by Garfield to get the Philly steak sandwich and the Zells, you know, it yeah. was culturally um, segregated, but in a good way. Like <laughs> you kind of, you kind of knew what you were getting in all these spots. Like right. Remo's, we've got our wedding cake there and uh, Jones barbecue mm -hmm. um, down there in the central di district did our wedding. Um, it was all because it was little cultural shops that, you know, I, I attended all the time. Because mm -hmm. uh, the little boroughs and pockets of certain cultures, which was was really neat, and now it's such a melting pot, yeah, that it, it seems to be, a lot of that's getting pushed out, especially with the big business. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It'll be really interesting to see kind of where the culture 
lands in terms of um, how all of these new people coming in from outside of Seattle are affecting just the vibe of the city and um, right. Yeah. You used to be able to pick out the Californians, right? <laughs> yeah. And now yeah. it's like everybody from everywhere. And, yeah. And I love it for sure. Yeah. I mean, I'm Definitely having this changed. experience of like feeling like this rare commodity that I'm born and raised here. Like people yeah. are like, really? What was it like? And yeah. wow, it's so unusual, you know. Joe like, six really? for life. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> what was the craziest? We should wrap this up here. But um, what was the craziest thing you ever saw? at Garfield craziest thing I ever saw um were you around when uh Jones was the principal um Dr. Jones I don't think so I was Susan Dursay and then Ted Howard I think those were my oh, principals okay. yeah I don't think I was there um I mean Gosh, I just some like so many little memories are coming up. But so I think one of the most like nerve wracking was just bomb threats that happened in my my freshman year and being like, you know, locked in rooms. And um, that was a little crazy. Um, and then I just have like individual memories of certain classrooms and um, sneaking out of class with people and going to play and the sprinklers on the field and um, things that happen on purple and white day. Going to the assemblies, I mean, there was there was madness happening all the time at Garfield. Yeah, in a good way. Yeah. You know, there's so much spirit and yeah. so much love and uh, it was a togetherness that I've never seen in another school. Yeah. It was a really good experience. What was your best experience at Garfield? Hmm. Besides playing soccer for me. That was obviously the number one. I mean, goes without saying. Yeah, and dragging a cello behind. <laughs> yeah. Um. You know, I don't think that there is, like, when I think back on what meant the most to me, I think it really was, um, like, my social interactions with other students and the sense of community that, that we had there and kind of coming to school, um, feeling eager to see everybody and feeling accepted there. I also had a really powerful experience at Cultural Relations I don't know how that program has evolved. That was sort of, in some ways, early roots of um, exploring some of the topics that I now am super passionate about and, and teach on around nonviolence. But that program was um, for students, by students, um, and parents and teachers came as like chaperones, but they didn't design the program. And it was... It was um, after the Rodney King riots developed as a way to help students have dialogue about issues of race, about issues of sexual violence, drug use, you know, like all of these taboo topics that were um, influencing everybody. So that was a really memorable experience for me going on those retreats with my classmates. Yeah, I think you were you were at Garfield at the right time. It was evolving into something that was outstanding great yeah and it was coming just out of the out of the rubble in a lot of ways mm -hmm. i mean we didn't we didn't have a soccer field oh yeah <laughs> oh no no how, how do you have a soccer team and then i remember the first year with the boys program we had 12 jerseys so when a person substituted off they had to take their shirt off and physically hand it to somebody yeah. else there was yeah. no 
booster club and right. we snuck on little park fields and got thrown off left and right. And then there was no school buses. Mm-hmm. So we'd have to, <laughs> this, this was a huge shock to me because I got there. There's no uniforms, no balls, no equipment, no field, no bus, no bus driver. And we had to find money to um, rent a bus. Mm-hmm. And it was always this one guy. And it was funny because he had the old plastic on the bus seats like your grandmother would have on the furniture uh-huh. to preserve it back <laughs> in the day. His whole bus was like that. I forgot that bus driver's name. May he rest in peace. I remember going to his funeral and mm. uh, just hundreds of people from the community came out and spoke, yeah. had little stories about what a kind person he was. And Yeah. But it's... The struggle is definitely real. Yeah. And like I was talking about with all the criminal activity around it, it didn't always seem like a safe spot. But then the education inside the building was mounting. You know, the the music program was great, the cultural studies. The teachers that were there were 100% invested in the kids. Yeah. And that work environment is a work environment I've never seen again. Mm -hmm. Everybody was at their best they were evolving they were trying to figure out plans to mm-hmm. make things better all the time and people were starting to give back to the school and yeah you know i look at it now it's rocking and rolling i love it, it. Is. yeah you know you're reminding me of like i remember in ninth grade um the school ran out of paper they ran out of paper so we were encouraged to bring our own paper to yeah. print our homework so that our teachers could, you know, print our homework for us. Um, and that was just normal then, you know, like the school didn't have a lot of resources. And I think there's so much benefit, especially um, coming from a lot of privilege, me personally, in my family, and just being a white person and how I was raised, um, being exposed to different lifestyles and, and different levels of resources was a really important experience um, to have firsthand. Yeah, you stay in touch with anybody? Yes. Yes. I'm, uh, well, my boyfriend is a Garfield grad and, um, I have a lot of friends. Shout him out. Reed Lewis. Okay. Yeah. Who else? Yeah. Um, I mean, so I mentioned my friend Sienna is the one who introduced me to nonviolent communication and, um, I have a number of a handful of friends, um, in the area and across the country who are from Garfield that I see, and talk to regularly. Anybody specifically from the team? From the team? Um, I'm trying to think back who was on the team. You know, I'm not seeing a lot of people from the team regularly, but I know um, Kaylee just had a baby. And I know Caitlin Chapin is in Seattle. And I know um, Claire Ka- Watts just got Kaylee married. Kaylee Spurlock. Kaylee Spurlock. Yeah. Yeah. Congrats to you. Yeah. So I'm um, yeah, and I'm sure I see other ladies from the team around. Yeah. Um, last question: Where, What's your favorite spot to eat out at Green Lake? Green Lake spot to eat. Um, well, favorite spot for coffee and smoothies is Retreat. Okay, it's a new cafe. I don't know where that is. Um, and in terms of food, okay, Cafe Bongos. Have you heard of this place? Is that off 99? Yeah. It's yeah, total... it's all like graffitied out with yes. like some palm trees or something. I was oh just walking gosh. by that the other day. What kind yeah. of food is there? 
it's uh, Cuban food. And, Cuban. and they, they've really got the whole vibe going. Like they have an outdoor um, beach. The whole patio yeah. is sand. Such and they've got the Cuban music. To too. Like it's a, very like unexpected. Yeah. Yeah. But the food's good. The food's good. Yeah. It's really right. authentic. It's really yummy. You get uh, the fried plantains? I do. Yeah. Big fan of black black beans. I like I like what they do there. Yeah. yeah. Black beans have good fiber. Good stuff. <laughs> um You've been listening to the Bystander Podcast. AaronMaryHugh.com. Thank you, Aaron. Thanks, Tim. I really um, enjoyed spending time with you and uh, looking forward to having lunch with you now. Likewise. All right. We're out. Be kind.